You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Stupid elf! You could have killed me! Dobby never meant to kill. Dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure. How dare you take a witch's wand! How dare you defy your masters! Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. And Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. Welcome, everybody, to the Leaky Cauldron. I'm so excited to be back here. I mean, of course, the 602 Club, but we're somewhere special tonight. Uh, man, if only I was actually in London, like, Drea, wouldn't that be awesome? That would be amazing. My sister was there a couple weeks ago and said it was just incredible, and I'm super jealous. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm Now I'm totally jealous of your sister. I know. Hmm. Dang it. Uh, well, anyway, we're not there, but we're here to talk Harry Potter. We're so excited uh, as we're moving towards Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. We finally reached the end, even though it's not the end because there's two movies, but we'll talk about it. So excited to be back to talk to you guys here this week. Another episode of the 602 Club. Of course, remember, you can find us everywhere. Uh, best place to do that is on iTunes. Go to iTunes.com slash TrekFM. You can find all of our shows while you're there. Find the 602 Club, give us a star rating and review, uh, and that'll really help us continue to grow, more people to find the show. Really appreciate everybody who's been there uh, to do that already. Of course, we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm. We've got our listeners only discussion group, which is called the Babel Conference. To get to that on Facebook, just type Babel into the search field on Facebook, or if you're at the website, trek.fm, you can click discussion on the menu bar. And that'll read you right to our listeners-only discussion group. And, of course, you can email us, trek.fm slash contact. Choose the show. Choose the 602 Club, and that'll come to me and any of the other hosts that are on with me. And then, of course, lastly, you can leave a voicemail. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We love getting voicemails. It's been a while, Alice. Just saying. Alice, we're talking uh, so, to you. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because you're the only one. Actually, I, I take that back. Lee from England has also sent us a voicemail, so it's always just fun to get them. So, yeah, I'd love to have them, especially what you think about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, which we're diving in tonight. And I guess really the first question is this. They broke up the films. Yes. Uh, they broke up that last book. <laughs> and... Their reasoning was they felt like this book, they pretty much needed most of what happens in it. It's a big book. If you make that into a movie, it's maybe five or six hours. And then they felt, well, but if we do it like in a two and a half to three hour movie, maybe we're just going to cut out too much. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, Drea, just when you first heard that before you even saw the movie, how did you feel about it? And I guess now that you've lived with it for quite a few years, does it does it work for you, the idea of splitting them up? I think this was one of the first 
book to movie transitions where they decided to split it into multiple movies and then the hobbit did it into three movies and then the hunger games did it into two movies and then you sort of got i think did twilight do it i don't know i don't follow twilight but yeah twilight did do it actually there you go breaking dawn or whatever that last one was so i get why they did it but i feel like they left out things i wanted when they did it so I have no problem with them splitting it into two different movies, but the fact that I was still missing things I wanted when they made two movies, I guess was just disappointing for me. No, I I actually am right there with you. I think I have no problem with it being two films. And I think that of all of the books into movies that they've done in two films, I think it makes the most sense. This is a story like the rest of the movies, they began to cut out anything that wasn't directly related to Harry. Wasn't really, you know, and so in this book, Harry is in the entire book. There isn't really a scene without Harry in it. And so because of that, you really need to take all of that together and put most of that on screen. Now, even putting that all together, I think you're still going to have to cut things because if you just do a literal adaptation, again, you're talking like two six-hour movies, it seems yeah, like. they'd you be know? long. It was a long yeah. and detailed book. I mean, she was literally wrapping up all the ties that she made through you know, six other books. So it was a very um, heavy book. Uh, but... There was still a couple of big things that they sort of left out. I mean, my favorite part in the book never happened in the movie. Actually, two of my favorite parts of the book never happened in the movies. Um, so I was disappointed in those. And they they rushed through some other things. So I kind of wished for just a little bit more if I was getting two movies. Um, but I'm glad we got as much as we did and that they did decide to break it into two movies and give me at least as much as they could. Let's just jump right into it. What was missing that you really wish? Because this is funny because we had this conversation back and forth throughout the different and you're always like, nah, it's okay. But it's interesting to hear you be like, oh, no, I missed stuff. I did. So what was it for you that was missing? Um, There was actually two big parts. One was his relationship with the Dursleys never got resolved. Mm -hmm. We sort of lost Mm -hmm. them at the end of movie five and never really saw them again. And we have no idea what happened to them. And in the book, it's a very heartfelt, very deep moment for Harry and his aunt. And you kind of have this, I always, everyone disagrees with me, but I have this theory that Dudley is actually like a full circle character. He's the character that goes the most from like, asshole to not jerk like he has a transitional he's got this rounded dynamic character that kind of it surprises you you don't really see it happening and then all of a sudden him and harry are sort of like i get it i was a total jerk and i'm really sorry and he doesn't have to say it but his actions and his interactions you totally know that's what happened um and that's just not in this anywhere and they shot it, and it's a deleted scene, and it breaks my heart that it's not there because it, you're exactly right. I completely and utterly 100% agree with you because that is a really important thing because that character, I think you're, wow, I'd never heard anybody say that, but you're right. He goes com- complete just a-hole mm-hmm. to somebody who is telling his his cousin 
I, I was wrong. And the way he does it is very Dudley-like. He's, you know, he's, I, I don't yeah. think you're a waste of space. Uh, but how Harry takes it is that that relationship has been healed finally. Like, mm-hmm. they're... Like they've come to an understanding, and I I completely agree with it you. It shows so. how much he's matured. Even though yes. he'll never understand Harry, he'll never understand that world, and he'll probably always resent him to some extent. He at least has now come to a point of maturity that says like I have been completely misguided this whole time. Um, and I think in the epilogue they talk about that they get together for the holidays now, like they have a relationship after this so to completely get rid of it and i love hearing his aunt petunia kind of finally stand up for herself and Mm -hmm. be like no i wrote you know i wrote him a letter and you find out the whole reason that they took care of harry for you know 12 years or whatever you know you learn that his the only way this spell would work is if he stayed with the family and you know petunia wrote to dumbledore asking to go to hogwarts like there's so much in the book that didn't make it into the movie that would have made the movie so great no i completely agree with you and starting off in part one you're exactly right it would have been so wonderful to have that at the beginning and i don't understand why it's not there because it was shot yeah, and it's, it fits it's just like within maybe, that scene. Maybe it didn't fit like the thematic or the cinematic approach. Maybe didn't like fit in with the rest of the film. They couldn't find a good transition for it. I have no idea, but that you was know, really. Um, and I think I think that that's one of those things that you know we have talked a lot about throughout the series. And I've really tried to approach this as okay. What if I'm somebody who's never read the books and I'm just watching the films? You've kind of seen that play out, and then you don't know what you're missing yeah. because you may have not read the books. And so this is one of those key places where I think it was important for the film to show that. And again, it's like, I think the deleted scene is like a minute. Come on, man. Come on. Yeah. And they're already, I mean, they already show parts of the scene and then they cut out the rest where Harry's watching them leave. And so they've really just removed the Dudley part and and yeah, I'm right there with you. So, what was the other thing that really that you were just like, what? Why isn't this in the movie? It it went kind of long in the book, and that's probably why it wasn't in the movie, to be honest. Um, but it was probably my favorite part was we spent a lot of time with Harry and Hermione and sometimes with Ron in the forest in this one, a lot of time in the woods. But we missed all that time that they spent at uh, Grimwald Place uh, where you learn about Creature and you learn about the Black family and you learn um, more about Sirius's background, and you know they and really. And you learn all about Regulus finally, right? And you know it, it, and that's sort of where you also get a lot of Ron and Hermione's relationship developing. Um, and, and actually, my favorite all-time favorite scene in the book, and it always like makes me all teary-eyed, is one of the nights. I think it's the first night that they're at Grimwald Place, and Harry can't sleep because he's Harry and classic insomniac um and he wakes up and he looks over and um, Hermione and Ron are like barely holding hands still where they're like dead asleep I'm like that just gets me every time it's like the feels And, and they just completely omit like that entire you get a little bit of them at the house just enough to move the story along to go to the ministry and then that's all you get so I kind of missed that part. That was one of my favorite parts. No, I'm right there with you with that too. I think uh, the the other thing that they cut out of that is the Lupin story, which t- 
turns out to be so important, but they just never pay off Lupin after the third movie. Um, they just they make him into a werewolf him. and then he disappears. Yeah. <laughs> you don't ever and get really frustrating or anything, yeah. Because it's such an interesting story, and it gives you it doesn't give you that payoff to. Harry has these moments in the series, especially the books, where he has a maturity that's beyond his years. And when he yells at Lupin for abandoning his family. That's one of those moments. <laughs> it's one of the, yes, it's, it's one of those fantastic moments where Harry is absolutely right. But you can also understand why Harry is so angry because his parents didn't do that. And he sees Lupin making a mistake that he knows that his dad would probably be yelling at Lupin. What are you doing? You yeah. know, and it, and it's one of those rare moments in the book where I think that Harry mirrors James in a in a way for a character that you just don't have. Um, you know, we get that in the fifth book and in the fifth movie with Sirius kind of thinking about Harry more in the the frame of his friend James, but this one I thought was actually a. a a place where Harry is living out what his dad would have been. Like he's he's mm-hmm. becoming that that better man. And I just I I thought that was fantastic. So I, I agree with you. I I missed that. While we're talking about things I missed, I actually missed that we pay absolutely almost no attention to Dumbledore. I know. It's such a long convoluted, long, long convoluted like history though. I had a really hard time following it in the book because you've got a lot of G names. <laughs> I had a yes, really hard time following them all. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, you, you only scratch the surface of the Dumbledore story, like barely. And it is, it is disappointing because they, they touch on it. Yeah. But it's it's not huge, and so I I am very I am very sad to have lost a lot of that because it plays into other parts of the story, and again they they kind of you know they they do a little bit of it, but I will say again something that's not a good payoff and it's not explained. There's absolutely no mirror ever <laughs> in the in the movies. So uh, he Harry's randomly has it, and you're like, he where did randomly that come has from? this piece of glass <laughs> that luckily somebody even mentions. Oh, that's a weird thing to carry in your sock. Um, thank you, Luna. <laughs> if you're not a book reader, you have absolutely no idea what that is or why he has it. And it's just, or that he thinks it's Dumbledore for like the longest time. Like you get his look and he looks like Dumbledore, but you, Harry was like adamant in the book that that was Dumbledore and that he wasn't dead or something. Like, I, I don't know, but yes, it was just so it was a, a very vital plot element to continue the, the story because that's how you get Dobby. And that's, how Dobby dies and I cry and then um, that's how you... And it plays in with Aberforth. Yeah, it plays in with that and then you find, you know, it's so, you have to have it. You can't cut that out but for some reason him getting it, they cut out and you just magically has a mirror in his sock because that's where I keep all my sharp objects. Right, and it's not even, and it's like in the movies, it's not even the whole mirror, it's just a piece of it because the mirror got broken but they, they never play that out whatsoever you have no idea how he got it Mm -hmm. and it's just it's one of those things where 
on a whole, beautifully, and I was talking about this with um, my plus one tonight, and, you know, she said, rolling just bits and pieces in each and every book, and it's all important. Mm -hmm. It's true. And the moment you start cutting things out, you kind of forget how important those things were. Because all of the puzzle pieces for her are important. They're, she doesn't do extraneous. You know, yeah. she really doesn't. As, as much as people want to say that certain things could have been cut out, all the themes are building it, and, and, and specifically plot points when you start to take those away. And this is one of those where the plot point was never there, you know, and then they use it. It's kind of like how they wanted to cut Creature out yeah. of the fifth movie and rolling was like no no you can't do that he's really he important has later to be on. there he has to he be has there. to be there the mirror is the same thing no 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 that's gonna be big yeah. you know it reminds me of hercules the disney movie <laughs> Andrew Fleming. it's gonna be big uh, <laughs> yeah i agree i think i know she was involved in the process of writing these scripts i feel like the deathly hollows wasn't about the deathly hollows the deathly hollows was about the horror crooks like that's one and two, but particularly one was literally they take away most of the plot points except for the hunt for the horror cruxes. And I think it felt very, I think so. Who was it that described it? That Deathly Hollows to them is the most, the part one is the most boring of all of them because most of the time there's a lot of sitting around. There's a lot of beautiful scenery, but there's a lot of nothing. There's a lot of just nothing happening, um, which is big in the book. Nothing happens. But did we really need to cut everything else to depict that on screen? I, well, and I think the, the, the difference is, too, and something we've talked about, is that Harry, Ron, and Hermione, they go into this book. They know what all the horcruxes are, except for the one that is, they think it's either something from Gryffindor or something from Ravenclaw, and they're pretty sure it's probably Ravenclaw. But they don't know exactly what it is. So that's the only one that they're not sure. It's frustrating because this, like you're saying, this movie, they're, they're just kind of wandering around, and, and really the only one they know about is the locket. And so they're just trying to get a hold of that locket, and that's really the main thing. Mm -hmm. And so once you jump to part two... They're running their butts off trying to find the rest of these and they still have no idea what they are. And they just kind of bungle their way into them, really. Yeah, because the only one besides the, the well, yeah, they know all of them except for the diadem and they don't know right. that Harry is a horcrux. Exactly. I think Hermione exactly. has an idea the whole time. Like, I think she probably has some awareness that she sort of is living in denial about because she just doesn't want to admit it and she doesn't want to be the one to break that to Harry. Um, at least in the book, in the book, that's the impression you kind of get is that she has some idea, but yeah, I mean, in this one, you're, they're playing like they're naive and they have no idea what any of them are. And they, and I think if I remember, it's been a while since I read the book, but if I remember, they also knew that most of the horcruxes were in the castle, were in Hogwarts and that they were going to have to go back at some point, but they were trying to figure out how they did that because they knew once they went back, like all hell would break loose. Yeah, it's it's um the locket and the cup that they're pretty sure aren't around. They also know obviously it's Nagini, the snake, so they're gonna have to go fight or be near 
Voldemort sometime. And then, yes, whether it's a Ravenclaw or a Gryffindor item, they're pretty sure it's probably at the school, mm-hmm. but they just, they don't know. But that's their right. best guess. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. In, in, and that's the thing I think about this, that, yeah, they kind of do a lot of wandering around. It, the last thing for me that doesn't pay off, and it's disappointing that it's not in the film, Wormtail. Yeah. And I'm disappointed that that's not in the movie because it's one of those places where Harry's kindnesses have paid off. Mm -hmm. Because that's a big theme throughout all of Harry Potter is the way in which Harry has been kind to people and to things that nobody thinks he should have been. And Wormtail is one of those. The kindness that he shows him comes back to help him later. And they don't play it out here. And it's disappointing because then Wormtail just isn't in the second part. And it's just like, you guys should have found a way to put that in that scene so that, because it it it's, it's it reminds me of Smeagol and Frodo mm-hmm. and how Smeagol is somebody that everybody else kicks around except for Frodo. You know, Harry does the same thing with Wormtail and in the end it turns out to be blessing to him in the same way him being nice to Dobie which is so awesome Mm -hmm. comes to play back in the story which is is just fantastic and it totally happens it's crucial in the second part it's his kindness is and I don't want to ruin it for the next one but his kindness is absolutely vital to his survival in the next one and he and he doesn't do it because he thinks it's going to happen he does it because that's who he is and he thinks that's the right thing to do and because he lived in a cupboard for 10 years and you know he knows what it's like to be the person that gets kicked around and he doesn't care who you are he, he knows you don't deserve that so right okay so speaking of we we talked about Dudley but one of the things that I felt like was really interesting was watching at least the film and with Malfoy mm-hmm. because I felt like him and Dudley are interesting mirrors of each other. Mm-hmm. You know that because he he's actually almost trying to help Harry by not giving him away in the mansion. Because he could have and it would have been in his best interest to have identified Harry. Like it absolutely would have been. And I love that. I think it's again, it's one of those places where you know, Harry and Malfoy have had their back and forth, but it's it's almost as if for a little bit, because it, it, into the second part, they'll have a showdown again. Mm-hmm. But it's like, at least at this part, Malfoy himself, Draco, is just, it's like he's not having it, you know? he's He's not, this isn't what he wants, and I mean, his parents, both of them, don't seem all that happy. I mean, they de- definitely don't seem to be enjoying the life they said they always wanted. It, it's almost, it reminds me of a Arrested Development where he's like, oh, I've made a huge little mistake, Michael. <laughs> well, it's it's very interesting. Um, you take characters like the Malfoy family who have been so horrible throughout this entire series we know we're horrible the first time around, right? Like there are, I think it's Goblet of Fire where you find out that Malfoy was like, Lucius Malfoy was the Death Eater before and like got the life he has by, you know, stepping on the little wizards and the muggles and stuff like that. And so it's really interesting to see that with this, this uprising that they didn't have the same 
experience this time around. And, um, it's, it was interesting to see like the whole, it's to me, it was the ruling with fear theme, you know, the last time they were just like high on power this time they were genuinely afraid. And the reason that they were living and serving the way they were is because they were terrified. And it, 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 I'm going to go like super historical here for a moment, but it reminds me a little bit of some of the stories you hear from um, German Nazi soldiers who are like, I just didn't know what else to do. You know, like it was scarier not to do what I was being told to do than, than to, you know, stand up. Um, and it, it's just, it's such an, this book gets so deep and, all we've talked about all the books sort of have their political underlyings and their social themes, but this one sort of is hitting you in the face with them. There's no subtlety to them anymore. Um, and it's, it's one of those moments where you're, you realize how terrifying Voldemort must really truly be where all along he's sort of been this like whispered fear that now you're actually seeing what happens. He who must not be named. Right. You were afraid of him, but you didn't, we talked about how Umbridge was scarier than Voldemort, but now you're legitimately seeing what it's like. And it's slightly terrifying. (laughs) Really terrifying. No, I, I I think that scene that they do perfectly. It's one of the things, you know, the movie has a few perfect scenes and one of them, I think, is at the beginning of the film when they're at the Malfoys. And oh, and they're sitting around whole, the table? Yes. yes. And it is the creepiest, the scariest thing because Voldemort is this full-on embodiment of evil that you always kind of expected in your mind when you read about him, but you're finally seeing that portrayed. And yes, now he's become the villain that's worse than Umbridge, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it, because like Umbridge, he's choosing to be evil. He likes to be evil, but he has a raw and utter power that's just even scarier than anything she could ever be. It's just, ugh, and it just she's, gives you the she's creeps. She's politically terrifying, right? Like, yes. you get her because she's behind her pink dress and her smiles and her- And her, her cat plates. And her little- her little like noises um but he just sits at this table and commands this power in another man's home and is like you're just i don't want to i don't want to meet you ever ever well i think horrible i like that you say that this this book kind of drops the pretenses and it it finally yeah it, it lays all of its cards on the table and it does that in a lot of ways one of them is the way in which the story starts out with this kind of narrative that the ministry is giving that everything's fine. We're all fine. Go back. How are you? Go about your business. Yes, exactly. And it's so interesting because, and it's disappointing that this wasn't in the Order of the Phoenix because um, we talked about with uh, Half Blood Prince, the ministry propaganda, and then the Order of the Phoenix. Uh, how that kind of, it, the themes really start there. Half-Blood Prince was so important because Scrimger had come to Harry asking him basically to do this very thing that he's doing at the beginning of this movie, which is, everything's fine, it's all good, we're doing the best we can. Yeah, and it's lying to everybody trying to calm the masses in, in the, the worst way. 
Uh, and it's interesting because he's really almost doing the same thing that Fudge was doing when he was telling that, you know, Voldemort wasn't back. It's just on the other side. No, uh, we're, we're your ministry is strong. We're doing, you know, like there's a there's a place where the truth needs to come out, and the the, the ministry trying to portray a face of everything's fine. Just it 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 reeks. And when you look at uh the world today, wow, it's not all that different, is it? No, and it's. What's interesting is not only is it everything's fine, to an extent, you believe that they really believe that. Like, you believe the ministry thinks everything's fine and that they're under control and that they don't want anyone to think. It's a very self-motivated message that they're putting out there, right? These elected officials are concerned about looking weak so instead of being honest with with the wizarding world and saying, this is bad, here's what we need to do, they're like, no, we've got it all under control. There's no way I'm ever going to admit to my voters or however they do their democracy there that I can't handle this. And you realize at some point it's not in your in everyone's best interests. And, you know, it's... um. I'm surprised. The other thing that was kind of missing from from that part of it was that the quibbler played a lot larger role in these in this book, particularly conveying that message that like, no, not everything's okay, guys. And, you know, very they kind of played that role throughout all of the books. But in this one in particular, it was a very stark contrast to what the Daily Prophet had out and what the ministry was conveying. And that pretty much got left out of this movie entirely as well. So... I think that also would have given you even more of that sense of this false safety. And that's a really interesting thing that they don't play up, like you said, the quibbler, because that's the alternative media. You know, I mean, the quibbler is, when you think about it, it's almost like the talk radio. Yeah. You know, the the podcasts, the, dare I say it, the Fox News, you know, like the thing that everybody discounts, but is actually telling you the truth. Well, the like, quibbler kind of starts, though, at the beginning of this whole entire series as like a tabloid. It's like, right, exactly. it's like that thing that tells you that this celebrity was abducted by aliens and now having a baby. Like, that's what it starts as and has no grounding and no founding. Hey, if we learn from Men in Black, we know that that's <laughs> the best reporting out there. So, <laughs> uh, Will Smith would be very proud of you. But it... It evolves. It evolves into being that sort of message of the underground and that like voice of reason. And and people are like, maybe it's not so crazy. You know, people started going to it. They started publishing the truth. And it, it in the second movie, it actually comes back to bite him. But it would have been a great place to introduce that when they were doing it with all of this introduction with the memos and the daily profits and all that it would have been a great place to put it. Well, and, and I think that um, the, the really scary thing, too, comes in. The, the ministry narrative continues, but it changes once Voldemort is in control of it. And yes. it feels very familiar in some ways. Yes. You know, except that now we really have turned this into Nazi Germany yep. for the wizarding world. Yep. You've got the trials and the yeah. witch hunts and, yeah. If you or don't the anti-witch the- hunts, I guess, in this case. The anti-witch hunts. That's the name of the show. I love it. Um, but no, you're exactly right because 
you know, if you don't live up to the artificial standard that Voldemort and his followers are created have created, you're cast aside. You know, if you don't have the genetic makeup that they desire, they manipulate the language to make people less than human, or they just completely deny the truth and the facts to a preferred narrative. Like, oh no, you didn't really get this wand. Who, which there. witch or wizard did you take that from? Exactly. I got it myself. They just they make things up to make themselves feel better about themselves, or they just, like I said, they're just it. And again, it's it's beautifully portrayed narrative here because we are watching these very things happen before our eyes today really scary so unfortunately rolling's like a prophet at this point (laughs) the london prophet of america (laughs) um but but for me so sometimes that sort of story and that narrative is really hard to watch because it is so real and I go to the movies and I read books to sort of escape the real like I don't want to go see a movie like I I went to the theaters and I saw um that movie with uh, Bradley Cooper like last year American Sniper I didn't enjoy it but not because it wasn't a great movie but because I don't I don't need to live real life I live real life you know um, so I, I tend to shy away from some of those films because the the little spare time I have, I want to sort of get lost in something. And so I worried when reading this book and hearing about it being translated to film that it was going to be overwhelmingly sort of political or you were going to lose hope at some point. You're going to just be like, oh my God, this is just horrible. Like, I just can't watch this anymore. But for some reason... In the last six books, <laughs> the last six movies, she was able to really give you hope that Harry has got to win. Like, they have got to pull through this. And even though it looks horrible and dark and dreary, you're looking at these, like, three teenagers who are 17 years old, and you're like, you, you are going to save this. And you don't know why, but there's that little bit of hope that you have that you're like, all right, so maybe this will be okay. Like this sucks. This sucks. But just hang in there. People hang in there. Like the end is coming, you know? And and I think for me, that's how I'm able to get through it and not have it be so overwhelming and so real that I can't watch it. Jumping into this, this idea of, uh, I I don't know how else to put it other than like you saying, not losing hope or it's like almost the feels, you know, like there's something about the feels that she gives you. And I I think for me, when I, when I was reading the book and it plays just a tiny bit in the movie because you see it on the headstone. But when you visited Harry's parents in Godric's hollow and on their headstone is this beautiful Bible verse, which you're not expecting in a Harry Potter book. And it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. I think that's the thing. Like to me, that's the hope. Like there's something bigger at work in the story. And that what that is, you know, at this point, we don't know exactly what it is, but we somehow know that that's hairy, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, and, and I think that's what's so important because she weaves this theme in, with the story of the three brothers, which is done incredibly in the film. I thought I that was one of the, the smartest. Visual of that. Yeah. One of the best decisions they made. Yeah. The idea that, you know, in the story, the smartest brother who has the invisibility cloak, which Harry has as well, and we see the parallels, meets death at the end of his life 
as an old friend. And like that there are things that are actually worse than death. And, and what I love, and this is the thing I think is so genius about rolling. She's able to tell you what she believes without forcing it down your throat about life and about the afterlife and all of that kind of stuff. But it gives beautiful hope to the story that death is not the end. There is something that is beyond. And being fearful of death is no way to live. Yes. And that's Harry, you know? And, 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 and then the most beautiful thing is what Harry has done his entire life, and he, you know, gets all up on his high horse, and everybody makes fun of him at the beginning of the movie when they have the seven potters that, no, nobody's going to give their life for me. Harry's self-sacrificial nature. You know, that's the hope. That's like the best part of ourselves. And all of those things together, I think, add to the feels for me that keep this from being just dark and dreary because it's an incredibly beautiful, wonderful story. And the way that she's writing it plays out. It parallels other stories and other things, which I truly believe in my life, that just reinvigorate me. So I love it. So I love the whole lore of the story and the whole Harry Potter, I guess, legacy. Um, the big piece, and you learn it, you, you kind of learn it in the movies, but you really sort of get it hit home um, in the books in that last scene that was missing from um, Order of the Phoenix for you. The part that you were really missing that follow up with um, Dumbledore, Dumbledore is that not only does Harry have this like sacrificial self part to him, but this whole prophecy, this whole life, this whole mission he has, this whole story you hear through Snape's tears when you learn that he truly cared about Lily and that all of this was for, for Harry um, was that Harry, this was completely like self-created. He, he being sacrificial is why this happened. Like him being him is the reason the story played out. Not because it was prophesized, not because Voldemort was hunting him down, but because he continued to be himself that drove forward this kindness, this sacrifice, all of this, building his tribe and finding, you know, it takes a village to do something like this. Just would not have happened if Harry wasn't who he was. It wouldn't have. If it had been Neville, it would have been a different, a totally different outcome even though technically could have been Neville. We don't know. And I think the thing that I always loved about that is there's this wonderful sense of cyclicalness mm -hmm. to it. Mm -hmm. Because it's the idea that Harry is prophesied to do something and yet Harry chooses to continue to do something so the prophecy comes true and it's this whole thing that it all plays together. So... Is it predestined? Yes. Is it a choice? Yes. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. And the way in which Rowling is able to weave that together in this story, to me, is kind of brilliant. The fact that you can show that, like, you know, predestination and... Well, and it was never actually said to be Harry. It was only Harry because people made the choice that it was Harry. It was, it was a boy born whatever day in June or whatever 
September, August. I don't even remember the date now. Um, but a boy born that day and him and Neville shared the same date. They were born the same day. They were both born to parents in this, in the order. I mean, it honestly could have been either of them. And for whatever reason, they decided it was Harry and Harry at some point could have said, Hey, this isn't me. This isn't my battle. This isn't my fight. Like I'm done. And, but he didn't because that's not who he right. is. Right, Voldemort chooses him, which creates the prophecy, meaning it's about Harry, and then Harry continues to choose to believe that prophecy and continue on, and like you said, be himself, and it's all these wonderfully amazing things playing together, and it's it's just an incredible, I think, part of the story, so I'm with you, I I really love it, And, and she, I think you said it beautifully, she finds a way to keep the story from becoming so dark and dreary that you don't want to keep reading. She actually gives you just enough to keep turning the page. Yeah. So you figure out how it's going to end. And I I think of Tolkien's idea of you catastrophe, where there's that happy accident where the, the turn for joy happens. And I think, you know, it, it comes in for her for her rolling in this the second part of this movie and so we'll talk about that then well i also i think in addition to the the happy moments of joy um i know that you you mentioned uh one of the parts that um sort of plays into this is this um this need for three right you need harry you need her hermione you need ron they need each other because no one we don't ever lose hope because not all three of them lose hope at the same time at any point. Each of them, you know, if Harry starts to lose hope, then Ron comes in and brings it back. If Ron starts to lose hope, Hermione comes back in. You know, it's like this this shared experience that they have. Um, and even when Ron leaves, you have that moment where kind of they feel like all is lost and they turn on the radio and they just start dancing. And it's it's touching and it's not romantic but it's just like this is what we need in this moment we just we need a moment to just dance to this weirdly sorrowful song um in the tent and get back on track tomorrow yeah i i that's a that's a great place to 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 move into kind of the way i mean this movie kind of feels like a road war film and that that scene in particular, uh, you know, it's something that they added for the movie. It's not in the book. Uh, what did you end up thinking about that? Because I know there were some mixed opinions about all that. There was a weird, at the end, there was this weird pause when they stop dancing and they kind of like look at each other, where in any other movie you would just be like, they're going to kiss. But I don't think that was the intention I, I don't get that that's what they were trying to do there. I feel like he was really just trying to console her. And that's the only thing he could come up with. Because to be honest, Harry's not very good at feelings. Harry's good at angry. Harry is good at hurt. But Harry is not good at like, oh no, someone else is feeling feelings. What do I do? Like that, he he's not so good at that. Um, and I think that was the only thing he knew how to do. Because he couldn't really talk to her about it because he didn't know what to say. And I think that's what they were trying to do, and I don't know if it worked. I, I like the scene in the sense that I, I think one of the, the interesting things about it is the fact that they're two teenage kids in the woods alone, and life is really sucky at the moment. And they have this moment where any amount of sexual tension that's ever been between them 
could come to the surface because there's no one else there and no one would yeah, ever there's know. no one else there but it's also you know where they've been in life you know and where they are in life at this moment you know and you make decisions in that kind of place where you wouldn't normally make them and, and what i think is is there is that moment like you said right at the end where they kind of look at each other and i really i kind of read it is that hermione she just pulls herself I mean, once the music stops and the song is over, the magic in that moment is done and she kind of goes back to being sorrowful and so does Harry. And it's like there, there, there is never going to be anything else because she loves Ron, you know, he loves Ginny and they're friends, but they're never going to find that kind of comfort with each other, you know? So I, I, I think it was an, it was, it was an attempt to, to say, if there was anything, it would be. If here there was ever going to be a time, this would be it. But these two characters, that's not what they're going to be ever. And I sort of took it as they were trying to recreate that moment in, not Goblet of Fire. Where's the one where he, he starts dating Lavender? Half Blood Prince. Half Blood Prince, where she sees him kiss. She sees Lavender kiss him, and then she runs off and starts playing with the birds. And Harry's there and like trying to comfort her. I almost felt like it was trying to do that. It was trying to have another moment that was very like two honest friends. Just what, what are you feeling? But I don't know. It, it, it felt a little out of place. I, I, it was a beautiful moment. It really was a beautiful moment. And that song is beautiful. And but it just fell out of place. No, I I completely uh, get what you're saying, and I I think, you know, when you, when I think about it in my mind, you know, there are those people like there's probably always that question with that one person in your life, you know, like what if we had like made another choice back in the day, but we didn't. So, and I, I think that just where those two characters are in that exact moment too, like that's what's being said there as well. I think it works enough. It doesn't like stand out where you're like, that doesn't belong there. Yeah. No, it feels organic to what's happening in the movie. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, that's that's a really, that's a smart thing. Because, you know, this whole section is, and I think doubt and fear ha- have kind of crept into the Trinity. Yeah. And part of that. You're starting to fear, break up these bonds between them. Right. One of the things of this doubt of which doesn't get played out, we already talked a little bit about in uh, earlier, Harry begins to doubt Dumbledore because he feels like he wasn't given enough. And, uh, to, and, and of course, then Ron begins to doubt him as well because of that. And then, of course, the Horcrux is feeding all of their worst feelings and I thought that that was, I mean, that part of the doubt kind of creeping in, mm-hmm. it's there in the movie, but I felt like it could have been a lot better specifically with the Dumbledore stuff because yes. the real story here at the beginning of the book, this first part, is really the story to understand Dumbledore. And then the second part is actually really the story to understand Voldemort. It's really all of Tom Riddle's background and yep. where he came from and... Um, you know, you learn Godric's hollow plays such a big role in the book that, um, 
because it ties that Dumbledore to Voldemort to Harry connection that we don't have. And, and it sort of paints this picture of the Trinity actually being Voldemort, Dumbledore, and Harry, and not Harry, Ron, and Hermione. The book gives you a completely different, it, it's so different from the movie. The movie tells the same basic plot line, but the the relationships and the 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 way that it's developed and you do start to doubt Dumbledore way more in the book than you do in this movie than you ever do in this movie. You know, Harry has moments of it, but I also wonder if that scene was added. I'm trying to remember when the movie actually came out, how much um, Harry and Hermione shipping was going on. Like, I wonder if it was kind of added to like, Rawling was just done talking about it and she's like, I'm just going to be done with it. Here it is. It's not happening. <laughs> like, Sorry, guys. It's not happening. I, don't ask me well, anymore. I mean, the movie had come out long after the book had been released and at that point we all knew because Ron and Hermione get married and Harry marries Ginny and so, yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying there and that makes sense and I think it's... It's just one of those things I wish had been added to the story of the movie because it plays into the themes they're already doing, but it just helps those themes, yeah. you know? And so find a way to add more of that Dumbledore story so you boost what you're already doing and just make it better and make it more believable for the audience that hasn't read the books, you know? Um, and I think that's really frustrating. And, and I think, too, because it, the fear part of this doubt and fear, it, their greatest fears are being played upon by the Horcrux, and Ron really gets the worst of it. But I and think it, they it, could have done that even more. Yes, like, they could have. He storms off because he's a, he thinks that Ron and, or he thinks that Harry and Hermione don't need him um, because, you know, he thinks they're better together. Just, you know, that whole shipping thing. But it doesn't, in the book, it sort of slowly builds. You know, he sees them talking and gets jealous. And, you know, she talks to Harry. She He starts seeing it. Right. He's he's reading into things that normally happen, but he's seeing it more. And we don't really get a lot of that um, before he sort of storms off. He just magically decides that that's it. And I'm storming off. Um, but I think if we had built that up a little bit more and then he stormed off and then you had this dancing moment, I feel like that would have built a little bit more organically. And then you would have been like, oh, oh, are they going? Oh, they're not going to. OK. You know, like, I, I think you could have built it just a little bit more. And I don't think it would have been too hard or time consuming. But um, I think maybe that's what they're trying to do. I don't I don't know. But it always just feels like the cliff notes. Yeah. <laughs> and so even here where you have two films to do it, it, it still feels like that. Although I do have to say, I think the best part of the movie and the most well-done scene and the most literal from the book is where Ron faces the nightmare, his worst nightmare yes. of the Horcrux. And it, it, everything that he fears is coming out of that Horcrux, telling them that your mother didn't want you. She would have rather have had Harry. She wanted a girl. Oh, and your best friend, your, the girl that you love really likes her better, you know, uh, and then what it shows them of, of them kissing and it's just so graphic and, and, and creepy and it is exactly what the book was saying and they bring that to life so well so they that do. when he finally 
kills his demons. You know, he slays his his <laughs> literal his literal demons and destroys the Horcrux at the same time. I think it's it's a really beautiful scene and it's, it's played beautifully and it's the part of and this is what I say, you know, just like with Tolkien, if you if you want to do it right, just go back to Tolkien. If you want to do it right, just go back to Rowling. She knew what she was doing and so when you do what she just did, you're going to be golden and they do that in that scene and it's it's beautiful. And I love that Harry makes him do it. Like Harry could have stood up and taken care of it while Ron was being like screamed at by this, but he knew it was in Ron's best interest for Ron to do it. And that if he went in there and he killed it, that Ron would just have this like, this like psychosis um, or whatnot. You know, he'll have this feeling of he wasn't good enough until the end of time. Cause you can't, you know, re-kill the horror crux. And I think, although I think my favorite line is when he comes back, um and you know Hermione's like oh how'd you come back he's like there's this little light and it just right through my heart and then uh, you know he's like do you think she's gonna be mad at me forever and Harry's like just keep talking about that little light through your heart and you're golden (laughs) like yes that was the best oh man I loved I love that whole scene because it again it plays out like it does in the book and and he tells the story and it's this it kind of seems like a cheesy story but at the same time, it very much fits Ron. And I think that's the great thing about this last book specifically is that each of the characters kind of goes through a moment where they grow. And that was Ron's. And uh, obviously Harry's comes in the second movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Hermione's comes when she makes that breakthrough with understanding what Dumbledore has been trying to tell her. Yeah, I don't know that Hermione gets as much of a breakthrough as some of the well, other she's characters. she's Hermione. She doesn't really need as much of one. Yeah, she hers is sort of a slow breakthrough from this sort of know-it-all to being more brave. You know, the application of her knowledge and her being able to do things like... If anything, hers is when she has the idea to jump on the dragon. And she's like, I didn't say it was a good idea, yeah, but it's an true. idea. Right. And, you know, she went with it even though you know, book one or book two, Hermione would have been like, this is a not a calculated risk we want to take, guys. She's like, jump on the dragon. Yeah, where she would have been like, now I'm going to bed before either of you find another way to get us killed or worse, expelled. expelled. Yeah, exactly. Um, I so I think hers is a, a smaller story, a longer unravel of her character. I Although another, the other scene that I think came almost exactly straight out of the book was the Dobby death scene. And how that all got handled, um, because that's almost the very, very end of this book, uh, of this movie, is when Dobby comes to save Harry Potter, because that's what Dobby does best. And, uh, you know, he dies. Bellatrix gets him with that throwing knife, and, you know, he has the little exchange with Harry Potter, and Harry buries him, and all of that is so... That is almost straight out of the book, and it's a beautifully sad scene, and... Again, that that pays off his kindness to Dobby and wanting to bury him, you know, one over Griphook, and that was important to do. So, mm-hmm. Dobby is a free elf, <laughs> and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. Dobby oh, standing up to Bellatrix is like the oh, best moment. You're oh, like, yes. Awesome. Actually, my favorite part is that when he's on top of the chandelier, and you just hear the. <laughs> 
Abby didn't mean it's to kill, so only awesome. maim or seriously oh, injure. Oh, man. Just gorgeous. Ah, Dobie is fantastic. And I do have to give a shout out here. We've talked a little bit about all the films and how, well, we talked a lot about all the films, but we have talked a little bit about how the CGI hasn't really lived up. I think this movie, the CGI finally works. Yeah. They finally got it down. I, d- I didn't really notice, even rewatching it, where I was like, oh, that's awful. Yeah. And it could have been with like the scene in the uh, vault that easily could have been just horrible. Mm-hmm. So I I think that they have they really picked it up and that worked really that worked really well. I I do I I think the end with Dobie is just as emotional as you need it to be. I would have liked to have seen I think where where Harry's digging the grave, more people helping him. Mm-hmm. But it you know him wanting to do it by himself and like just out there digging and digging something that was like in the book it's deep. Yeah. You know like I would have liked to have seen a little bit more play out in that scene just because I think it's a cathartic moment for Harry and it's a cathartic moment for the audience as Harry digs that grave. But it's also important because in the book, it's the time in which Harry's thinking. Yeah. And of course, we're not getting any of that in the movie. And that is a hugely pivotal scene because Harry in that whole movement, as he's digging makes the decisions of what he's going to do next. Like he puts the whole thing together mm-hmm. and I, I, it, it's disappointing because they can't do that in a movie and you don't really actually get how analytical and smart Harry can be even without Hermione. He's able to put all these pieces together. And this is another frustrating thing. Last thing here that I'm frustrated with is the Deathly Hallows. They don't play any part of this movie almost because you don't the get it other, until the next movie. Right. The other half of the story after they go to Luna's place is Harry obsessing about the Hallows and the other two telling him, no, we have to find the Horcruxes. Yeah. And it becomes another one of those instances where Harry is obsessing about something that everybody's telling him. No, 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 no. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. But actually, Harry's right. They play together. Like, because because that was what Voldemort was so obsessed with, that Harry can actually sort of understand the process of where they're going because he also shares that obsession for different reasons, but he shares the obsession to really figure it out. Um, Not even realizing, um, it's not going to ruin anything because they don't talk about it in the movies, but that, you know, he has the cloak from the story and that... The stone, mm-hmm. I think he has the stone. He has the stone and the snitch. Right. He has the stone and the snitch. So he's got the stone. Um, so he's got everything but the Elder Wand, which is technically rightfully his. <laughs> so, I mean, he's got them all. But we don't ever really put that all together in the movie. But in the book, it, they really outline it. Because also in the book, you find out that the Peveril brother the one who had the cloak was a was a paternal ancestor of harry's that's his dad's great grandfather or something like that like that cloak when it was passed on to the child when the father met death as you know as an old friend that was harry's family like he has enough like the the cloak from the story so um which i loved in the book i thought that was so neat um but you know, well, and that's that's the thing too is that Harry finally puts together in the scene where he's digging the grave, 
all of these desperate pieces because I mean he we've seen in the movie you know he's been getting these flashes of what Voldemort's after and he's been learning all this stuff and he finally puts it all together and it's interesting to me it's Harry that does that it's not Hermione right and usually it would be Hermione but this time it's finally Harry and I think I think that's almost vindication for that character and in it it's a good thing to finally have happen we just don't see it play out in the movie and I guess it's the really technically the beginning of the second movie but we don't see that play out where it would be in this movie because it's where he's digging the grave and that's not a part of it right and and you don't even get that moment where you see flashes or you just you just don't get it like the that's also I think where he comes with the whole plot to break into Gringotts which you never that that's a whole plot that they've sort of come up with um and you don't get it. It just, you just don't have it, you know? Um, you don't realize it's like a full thought out scheme that they're doing, not just they're winging it. Like they literally have a plan. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. And I guess it, it really comes down to um, <laughs> what would we end up rating the Deathly Hallows part one? What do you think? Um, It's important because you get part two. But I think I agree that it's one of the, it has some real exciting moments and some real key pivotal times, but it is one of the less engaging and harder to rewatch parts um, because it's, it's so just, here's what you need to know for the next one. So if I rate it out of five, I, I'd probably give it like a three and a half. The CGI is really good and the story parts are really important, but because it was split into two movies, you don't really get a big climax like you get when you see a movie start to finish. So three and a half, a little dull. I'm I'm at the same rating as you are, but I'm coming at it differently. I actually like this one and I enjoy watching this one. I don't know why. I think it's because the movie itself is so well made. The the cinematography in this film is gorgeous, and the way it's shot, it feels so different. And I think that fits. It should. It really should feel different. Obviously, so I I really like this this movie, but I think that for all the things we talked about that it's lacking, it could have been a five star movie if it had had all the things that we talked about that are missing. I think if you'd paced it differently, it could yes, have been. If you a paced great it movie. differently, and I think if you added what we said you should add, some of those scenes are maybe a minute, some of those scenes are maybe two minutes, and some of that stuff is probably like another ten minutes, especially like the Dumbledore stuff that probably needs another ten, fifteen minutes to explain. But you know what? We're all Harry Potter fans watching this movie at this point, so. And I, I think then it services the people, again, who didn't read the books. So if you hadn't read the books, the more story that you get, the better. Because, again, there's things in here that, like we talked about with the mirror, where the heck did that come from? What is it? And why is Harry using it? But he doesn't even care about it. You know, since you've never told us that before, you should probably tell us somewhere here in, in this movie, somehow. And so, yeah, it's it's... I actually like it a lot better than I think a lot of people do, but I can see the 
flaws that it has. And obviously, we talked a lot about the things we would have liked to have seen in it. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited to talk about part two. And uh, I can't wait to get to part two. And then I really can't, I can't, I'm really excited about Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. Every time that guy's like, I want to be a wizard in the commercial, I'm like, that's me. I just want to be a wizard. Um, so I, accidentally saw the trailer for it i don't remember what we were watching but it came on i might have been watching hulu or something and it came on but i don't watch movie trailers <laughs> i said that when we had a they have a mid-year comic-con here and um, that happened back in october for us and on the panel i was like i don't watch movie trailers and i got a bunch of people upset about that um i don't like to know what i'm getting into before i get into it so um i inadvertently saw the trailer and i Almost turned it off, but I got so excited I left it on. So, I mean, it has to be a good one if I watch the movie trailer for it. There you go. There you go. That's awesome. I, I kind of like that. You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with not watching trailers. If it's a movie that you already know you want to see, yeah, that's great. Um, You know, I'm sure there's other movies out there that you have no idea of and you saw the trailer and you're like, oh, that's great. But, I mean, yeah, if, you, if it's a movie you already know what you want to see, you yeah, know, I, I understand not wanting to have it ruined, especially since trailers these days can add a lot from the movie that do completely ruin everything. Yeah, like the Avenger, the last Avengers one, it basically just told you the whole story in the trailer. And I was like, well, don't have to see the movie now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did see the movie, but I'm so glad that uh, we get to talk about all this stuff. Thank you so much to Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson and Norman Lau, our associate producers through Patreon really appreciate these guys uh they help make sure that the show does come to everybody each and every week we are a track fm a listener supported network and so what that means is that you can go over to patreon.com slash trek fm and see how you can make sure that all the shows that we do here across the network keep coming to you each and every week this is a huge network there's so much going on and there's just no way that we can pull that off without your support as listeners and so we really Heartfelt thanks to everybody so much who makes it possible. And you can become part of the team. Every little bit helps. And I, I mean that with all sincerity. It truly does. Just go to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can be part of our team. Now, Drea, this, I am so excited because I can't believe we started this series at the very beginning of the year and we're <laughs> almost finally through it. To get to Fantastic Beasts and where to find it, it always brings me joy when, like, been eagerly anticipating something. So hopefully it's good. But before we get there, let everybody know where they can find you online. And then, of course, you are part of a wonderful podcast network. So make sure everybody knows about that, too. So you can find me on Twitter at PCF Chick or Instagram, Drea Kaufman uh, with C-C-O-F-F-M-A-N. Um, I am a host for Educating Geeks. You can find us at educatinggeeks.com. We are a podcast network that has a handful of different podcasts. We're not nearly as big as Trek FM, but we talk about uh, all kinds of geekdom. We like to uh, focus on bringing new people into our geekdoms instead of making them feel shamed or uncomfortable for not having experienced it. Uh, so we like to bring new people in and say, hey, you haven't seen Harry Potter? Well, let me tell you about Harry Potter. So that's sort of what we do. Our podcasts are uh, available on Stitcher or iTunes and on our website, again, educatinggeeks.com. 
cannot wait to get to part two. It's going to be so exciting. Uh, you can find me all over the place as well. You can find me here on the network doing literary tracks with Dan and Bruce talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek. You can also find me, of course, on the orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. You can also find me here, of course, uh, on the 602 Club. But don't forget, if you're just a huge Star Wars fan, you like all the Star Wars episodes we do, check out Star Wars the 602 Club collection there on iTunes. It's a whole special feed just for those episodes. You can subscribe to that. You can review and rate that as well. So I hope you will do that. And if you love Star Wars, you're going to want to check out Aggressive Negotiations that I do with John Mills over on the nerdparty.com. Or, of course, just type Aggressive Negotiations into iTunes, and that'll help you find that podcast. We have a blast talking about all the things that we love about Star Wars, esoteric weirdness from Star Wars. I mean, recently this last month in October did a lot of things kind of like on the scarier side of Star Wars as we are working towards Halloween, so that's a lot of fun. Just check all that out over there at thenerdparty.com or, of course, just search Aggressive Negotiations in iTunes. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? Hear?